Thank you all so much. Thank you, musicians. I, uh, there are a few things that make me feel like I am 12 again in the happiest possible way. And those two ways are, one, having a hot, gooey chocolate chip cookie out of the oven, and two, singing Christmas hymns at Christmas time. So thank you so much. Well, uh, Pastor Ted kindly asked me to uh, preach on this uh, bumper crop Sunday after Thanksgiving, and uh, Ted and his wisdom, God and his providence are both gave us the, uh, the text before us tonight, which is from Genesis chapter 4, so begin making your way there. We'll begin with verse 16. And let me just tell you that if I had a, uh, to make a list of the hundred passages in order that um, I would want to preach on, I don't think this passage would even make the hundred and first. But having said that, preparing for the week, it's been amazing how uh, dense and how rich this passage is. So let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 16. Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore him Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all the instrument, all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain is Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called, him Seth, called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, let's do that very thing. Let's call upon the Lord and ask God to give us great wisdom here. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of opening up your Bible together. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we may see wonderful truth from your scriptures. We pray that you would open our minds to apprehend what you'd have us know. We pray that you would inflame our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may love you because you first loved us. And Lord, open our mouths to sing your praise and to speak of the wonderful rescue that is ours in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have before us a passage uh, that I consider a tale of two cities. 
Now, when I say Tale of Two Cities, you may be thinking of the 1859 novel by Charles Dickens, and uh, that features the two cities of London and Paris. Now, it's understandable that you, you think I'm talking about the Dickens novel, because I read that over 200 million copies of that book have been sold. But I'm not thinking of Dickens. Um, I'm not thinking of Paris and London. Instead, I'm thinking of a different author, a different century. We go all the way back to the 5th century AD to Augustine. And in his City of God, he describes two rival competing cities, the city of man and the city of God. And here we see in detail, or actually kind of in miniature, the two competing cities that run throughout human history. We see in Genesis 4, verse 17, the actual founder of a city, Cain, who is guilty of the murder of his brother. And at the end of this chapter, in verse 26, we see a rival line, people who are calling upon the name of the Lord. That's Seth and his descendants who call on the name of the Lord, and we read in the book of Hebrews, they are looking forward to a heavenly city whose architect and builder is God. Now, I don't know if you, if you notice this, but verse 26 is kind of a curiosity because it says that this is the time when people began to call upon the name of the Lord. But it's a curiosity because after all, Adam and Eve spoke face to face with the Lord in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord in chapter 4, Ted, uh, uh, taught us last week about how the Lord even talks to Cain. So what does it mean to, when we read that people started calling upon the name of the Lord? Well, I think the answer is that we have here the beginning in Genesis chapter 4 of two robust camps in opposition to each other, if you want to think military terms. They're, they're enemy camps, they're rival camps, or, in the language of Augustine, they're competing cities. And we see in this passage the priority of the city of man. One's own pleasure, one's own fame, one's own comfort and security, the exercise of one's own power. But we also see right at the end of this passage the priorities of the city of God. They call upon the Lord. They believe and hope and trust in him. All right, well, let's first talk about the city of man. Uh, Verse 17, Cain, uh, having left the presence of the Lord in verse 16, uh, knows his wife. Uh, This is possibly his sister. Genesis chapter 5 verse 4 tells us that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And Cain and his wife have a son away from the Lord uh, in the land of Nod, which means wandering. And Cain's priority, like all people in the city of man, is his own security and to establish a name for himself. Now, the the city that he built, it wasn't uh, Dallas or New York, but it afforded some kind of protection, and we read that Cain names it after his own son. Now, far from thinking 
that Cain has triumphed over God's curse against him in verse 12, that Cain will always be a fugitive, we should see his establishing a city as an indication of the fulfillment of God's curse. After all, what do you do when you're terrified that people are out to get you? As a friend of mine always liked to say, it ain't paranoia if they're really out to get you. Well, what do you do? You get your bunker ready. You hole up. You stockpile your provisions. You put up walls. You make sure that the gate is locked at night. So notice that Cain is not looking to the Lord. He's seeking to establish a name for his son. He's living without reference to God. But notice that even though the city of man lives for self, God nevertheless is kind and gracious to them. And the kindness of God here ought to astound us. It it should remind us perhaps of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Look here at um, verses 17 and 18. God gives even murderers children. Cain has a son, Enosh, and Arad a grandson. There's Mahujael, a great-grandson, and Methushael, a great-great-grandson. So Lamech, whose uh, character we'll get to in a moment, is a great-great-great-grandson. So even a murderer, a man who murdered his own brother, is blessed by God with a wife and a son, and then grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Isn't that astounding, the kindness of God? But it's not just that he has descendants, because there are plenty of parents who have uh, children that they're then kind of ashamed of. But Cain, in terms of his focus on worldly success, founding a city, naming it after his son, he has children that he can be proud of. They do stuff. And notice the kindness of God that it's to the city of man that we see the founding of cities in verse 17. Dwelling in tents and having livestock, verse 20. The city of man gets credit for musical instruments, verse 21. And it also gets credit, verse 22, for instruments of bronze and irons. Look at this astonishing profusion of talents and skill. I like to think here that Cain's family is undergoing an industrial revolution. But Seth's line is left in the dark ages. You know, if you were just an observer, kind of off in the distance, and you didn't know the details, you'd look at Cain's family and go, oh, you know, depending upon your, you know, how pagan you were, the God or the gods, they're blessing that family. Look at them. They have stuff, and isn't it great? But Seth's family, we don't read about their fantastic accomplishments. And this contrast ought to surprise us. 
Now, it's not to say that um, wealth is never a sign of God's blessing. It can be, and we ought to be, be grateful for it. But it is to say that wealth is not a guarantee that you are falling under the blessing of God. This is not unique to Genesis chapter 4. We see it later when Abram and Lot separate in Genesis chapter 13. If you remember, Lot looks out over this extraordinarily fertile valley. And he says, that's where I want to live. And so he goes and he lives there. He chooses that particular plot of land for himself. He moves to that place, which is called Sodom. And if you don't remember that story, just trust me that it didn't work out well for Lot and his family living there. And so, too, in this passage, we see Cain's descendants, the wicked ones, awash in the blessings of God. I think we can apply this to our lives when we're weak and ill, when we're feeling poor and downcast. Let us remember that God's people are not distinguished by their stellar physiques and their fat pocketbooks, but by their devotion to the Lord. You can actually have a fat physique and a thin pocketbook and still be loved by God. And far from discouraging us, I I think that we should be humble when we are, in fact, blessed by God. Because, after all, he blesses the wicked too. And um, these these lessons are not um, opportunities to gloat over the evils that we're about to read about with, with Lamech. But it should, I hope, correct a mistake that we make. We tend to think that the people who are admirable in one way, those who are strong or smart or attractive, must be therefore admirable in every other way. But it's just not so. Marvelously talented musicians can be reprehensible little creatures. And amazingly talented athletes can be awful pieces of work. So we ought to see the difference between the kindness and grace of God and uh, just poured out lavishly to everyone and those that do what the Lord requires by calling out to him. The city of man is certainly blessed by God, but they are far from him. Now, Does God's kindness to the city of man lead them to repentance? Do we see this in Genesis chapter 4? Absolutely not. In fact, Lamech is a dreadful piece of work. One commentator on this passage actually remarked that Lamech's example shows that men ever glide from bad to worse. In the city of man, yes, we have the father of cities, musical instruments, etc. But we also have the father of polygamy and the father of revenge killings. Lamech is full of lust, boasting, and violence. Another commentator, um, I really like this line, he noted that Cain's descendants were very good at controlling the environment, but very bad at controlling 
themselves. They were very good at controlling the environment, but very bad at controlling themselves. Now, this is actually, this, um, there are, in fact, recent uh, examples of this principle. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Edwin Howard Armstrong, uh, but he invented FM radio. So if you go to your car after the service and you turn on FM radio, you can think of Edwin Howard Armstrong. But don't think about him too long because he um, attacked his own wife with a fireplace poker. And she had to go and flee and live with her, with her sister. And then very sadly, he uh, later killed himself. So Edwin Howard Armstrong was good at harnessing I don't even know what to call it, the power of the airwaves. And yet he was very bad at controlling himself. But now let's turn to Lamech, who actually makes Edwin Howard Armstrong look like My Little Pony. And we can talk about Lamech first by talking about women. So far in Genesis, we have, I think, only four women who are mentioned by name. We have, of course, Eve, Adam's wife, the mother of all. And we have Tubal-Cain's sister, Nama. And then in verse 19, we have uh, Lamech's two wives, Ada and Zillah. And for those that were here when Pastor Ted preached on Genesis 2.23, he pointed out that man's first recorded speech was basically a song to his wife, Eve. It's a song before the fall, full of joy and thanksgiving, in which Adam warbles over what the Lord has given him, namely, his beloved. Now, here we have another song before other women in Genesis 4, 23-24, but I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that most women would prefer Eve's song to um, Ada and Zillah's. So look at uh, uh, verses 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 4, and let's try to set the scene here. So Lamech's at home. He's listening to Tweedle Jubal play a tune on the lyre while Tweedle Jable's outside with the livestock. And I imagine for some reason, I imagine him to be this enormous man with a big belly. And so here he is, he's on, uh, you know, some kind of thing on the floor or in some kind of chair. For some reason, I picture him in a couch. And uh, let's say he's drinking the ancient Near East equivalent of a Michelob Ultra. And his wife enters the home. Well, I correct myself. One of his wives enters the home. Let's say it's Ada. And then the other wife comes in, Zillah. And he stands up. He looks at them and he tells them, hey, pay attention here. Hear my voice, he says in verse 23. Listen to what I say. And then with his wife's wife's attention, he begins to boast in murder. What an odd, truly odd thing to do. He um, tells his wife that he delights to take revenge. Excessive, extravagant, shocking revenge. If you look at verse 23 where the ESV has translated 
a young man for striking me. This word actually includes anyone who is not an infant. So if you think about it, we certainly say, young man, listen to me. And we're dressing an 18-year-old, a person that we would think of as a young man. But also sometimes if a, if a six-year-old boy is running in church, we may catch his attention by saying, young man, stop running. And so here is someone who is boasting that he receives a slight and he's happy to kill a young man with all the ambiguity that that implies. And he's boasting about it to his wives. In the comfort of his own home, he's exulting in his violence. He glories in his shame, if you think about what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. One commentator notes that he, quote, casts forth the venom of his cruelty into the bosom of his wives. It's despicable, isn't it? And, and quite honestly, it's, it's downright odd. It's bizarre to contemplate, isn't it, that Ada and Zillah would be impressed or delighted by Lamech's speech. But it's even more horrific to think that they would be exulting in it. Like, yeah, that's right, Lamech, you're my man. You'd kill a boy even for, you know, uh, cutting you off on the freeway. But this is the picture that we get of how wicked the world is before God's righteous judgment in Genesis 6. But it gets worse, doesn't it? Because having appointed himself in verse 23, judge, jury, and executioner, in verse 24, he ratchets up his boasting. He says, Cain's revenge sevenfold, but Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, if you remember, God in his kindness put a mark on Cain. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kindness and a mercy in order to protect him. And the mark of Cain came with a divine sanction. The punishment for killing Cain is a sevenfold vengeance, a complete punishment. But notice that it's a judgment by God for a transgression of what the Lord has established. Now, Lamech sees things differently. If his ancestor's revenge was complete, he thinks to himself, well, then mine will be even more complete. Now, the boasting is, of course, ridiculous on so many levels. It is silly to think that having killed a man, you can punish him more than that, humanly speaking. Now, people have tried it, of course. I take you back to January 687 A.D., Pope Stephen VI has had his predecessor exhumed, that is, taken out of the grave and put in a place of judgment. And he has a deacon answer questions on behalf of the corpse, the dead man. And in the trial, they find a previous pope guilty and they cut off three of his finger, fingers and they rebury him. And then presumably after some kind of change of plans, 
they decide to pluck him out of the ground again and toss him in the river. Now, all of this is so bizarre and so gruesome, in part because what's the point? We cannot punish a man after his soul has departed from his body. That's why there's no punishment more ultimate in human terms than capital punishment. Once we've done that, there's just nothing left to do. But Lamech crows that somehow his revenge will be greater and more pleasing to himself than the punishment that is guaranteed by the Lord God Almighty. And I think understood in that way, we see that Lamech is a blasphemer. He speaks ill of God. First, he he misinterprets God's promised punishment on behalf of Cain. As though it's a a blood vengeance, a bloodthirsty thing. where As though God is saying, if you mess with Cain, I'm going to mess with you. On the contrary, God's just punishment is held out against those who break his law. And then, even more astonishingly and foully, wickedly, Lamech claims that he can go beyond the punishment of the Almighty God. Well, I think then that it goes without saying, as we wrap up this discussion, this pleasant uh, walk through the city of man, that when we get to the Lord being grieved at the wickedness on the earth in Genesis 6 in preparation for the flood, we ought to sigh with relief. Away with them all. Away with all. Wash with heavenly soap the earth of its Lamex. So that's the city of man. But we know that even in this wickedness, there is a line, a thread, through corrupt humanity. Those that trust in the Lord. Verse 26, that call upon the name of the Lord. And this city of God, in Seth's lineage, is... Um, can, we can think about it in two different ways. They call on the name of the Lord. And let's think about first how they use earthly things with a heavenly, from a heavenly perspective. And second, let's talk about how the city of God um, has a great hope that the city of man doesn't have. So use and hope. So first, those that call upon the city, uh, call upon the name of the Lord, can use the rival city's stuff for their enjoyment and God's glory. Those trusting in the Lord can, uh, as we read in Exodus, plunder the Egyptians. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's take, um, I like music, so let's take the lyre. So um, Jubal's the father of all who play the lyre, Jubal. Will you remember his name next week? I mean, hopefully you do because it's in the Bible. Um, But of course, there's a far more famous player of the lyre. The same word is used here in Genesis chapter 4 as it's used throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 16, for example, a man is refreshed 
by someone who plays the lyre with his hand. Perhaps he uh, plucks it. And that man, of course, in 1 Samuel 16 is Saul. And the one playing the lyre to calm him is David, the future king. And later in uh, 2 Samuel 6, as king, when David brings the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, he's ecstatic. And if you remember, he's so excited that the ark of the covenant is going to be in his hometown, that he leaps and dances before the Lord. Is there music in 2 Samuel 6? Absolutely. The city of man may have made the lyre, but the sons of God know how to play them. God's people know how to party. They know how to have fun, and they're not embarrassed by it. In fact, if you remember, it's Saul's daughter, who's also David's wife. She's the one who's embarrassed. And she's the one who thinks that David the king has disgraced himself. And in 2 Samuel 6, 21, David says, here I'm reading, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I mention these things because I want us to remember that hell doesn't have all the best musicians. And as an aside, arguably the greatest composer of all time, Johann Sebastian Bach, was a faithful Christian. And it's not as though every single inventor is necessarily evil. Michael Faraday was the man who made uh, the, the use of electricity possible. And he was a devout Christian. And when he was asked about the afterlife, he reportedly said, I shall be with Christ, and that is enough. Nevertheless, we don't have to worry, right? If uh, Carl Benz, who I think was the one who first made a motor that could function in an automobile, I don't know anything about his religious life. He could be a Satanist for all I know, but I don't have to worry about driving or not driving a car. We in the city of God can plunder whatever the city of man thinks up and use it to God's glory and our joy. That's the first point. It's about use of stuff. We can use stuff to God's glory and our joy. The second is hope. This is a, a, a sad passage uh, because of sin. But look down at verse 25. Here we see Eve having lost basically two sons in a day, one to murder, the other to flight, we see her having a son and saying, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. And Abel is dead, yet she is hoping in the Lord. Now the last time this word offspring was used was in Genesis chapter 3. When the Lord is cursing the serpent. And he says in Genesis 3.15. 
between your offspring and hers, that is Eve's offspring, uh, I'll put in enmity. He shall bruise your head, this offspring, and you shall bruise his heel. And so we know that eventually the offspring of the woman will triumph ultimately and completely over uh, the enemies of the city of God. But it's not Seth, right? Because we know in Genesis 5 verse 8, Seth dies too. Abel died because Cain killed him. But Seth dies because he was born in a fallen world. And as a result of the fall, what is decidedly and profoundly unnatural that people made in God's image should die has become altogether commonplace. Yet there is a direct descendant of Seth through Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, through David and many others, who crushed the serpent's head, though he was bruised when he did it. And he too died in our place, but death could not hold him. And I'm talking, of course, about Jesus of Nazareth, who's about as unlamic as you can get. Lamech boasts of vengeance, yet Jesus, we read in 1 Peter, was reviled, but did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Lamech sought vengeance 77-fold, but Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, tells Peter that he should forgive his brother not seven, but 77 times. So if the city of man is to be known for its quarreling, for its desire to stretch itself for vengeance's sake, the city of God ought to be known for its kindness, stretching itself to forgive. The city of God, like its father Lamech, and ultimately the, sorry, the city of man, like its father Lamech, and ultimately the devil, is consumed with self, obsessed with its own desires. But the city of God, by contrast, is founded by the one who quite literally stretched himself out on the cross to forgive his enemies. So no wonder then that those in the city of God who call upon the Lord have a wonderful, amazing, and majestic hope. And so we see in this contrast something that you wouldn't think a university professor would say. Namely, it's better to be illiterate, unsophisticated, and ignorant, but to be rescued because you call on the name of the Lord than to be remarkably educated, sophisticated beyond degree, rich and satisfied, than not to call on the name of the Lord. After all, if you are rich and full of yourself, you're away from Christ and judgment is coming. But if you're in the city of God, then you can say Christ was punished in my place and I am set free. And so there's hope for those who Call on the name of the Lord. 
who live in the city of God. But this passage is a reminder, isn't it? The judgment is coming for those who flourish now and live in the city of man. Now, Christians are often derided for being opposed to things because they don't like them, they go yuck when they see them, or because Christians just don't want people to have fun. But nothing could be further from the truth. Christians calling upon the name of the Lord, walk through a world of wretchedness. And we see people who need saving from themselves. They are very good at controlling the environment, but bad at controlling themselves. And so seeing this sad truth, we call loudly and openly to those trapped in the city of man to call out, to turn from their pursuit of wicked pleasures to the Lord Almighty. And this passage should remind us that even if pagans have the nicest toys, even if they flourish for a time, judgment is still coming. God's justice is sure and certain, and in the presence of so much great evil, we ought to plead with our neighbors and colleagues and friends. If God flooded the earth in the face of such great wickedness in Genesis chapter 4, we ought to seriously question how long he will withhold ultimate judgment from a world such as ours. One of the things that I did, I I say this in closing, one of the things that I did when um, uh, preparing for this sermon is I thought of kind of modern day Lamechs. But the real sad thing is that if you try to read about modern day Lamechs, They um, are so vile and so wretched. I honestly thought I can't even mention this in church because, as Ma says in Little House on the Prairie, little pitchers have big ears. And so, but, but again, by way of closing, let's just think about how, how awful our world is. I live a life of ease and comfort. I really do. I'm happily married, have cute little kids, I walk to work, I have a nice job. But this passage reminds me that there is deep sin and sorrow in the world. And there are people who need the message of redemption. And God in his providence has appointed us to bring it to them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus, that though we um, were running from you, and though we hated you in our hearts, you brought us to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting, always and forever love. Father, would you so... Put the hope 
of the heavenly Jerusalem before us. And the, the, the place of punishment, hell itself, that awaits unrepentant sinners. That we would be bold in the gospel. That we'd be sacrificial in our giving. And that we would live with a determined purpose to see Christ glorified throughout the earth. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.